You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. This morning, uh, so very thankful for God's gifting of people in many ways, but even especially this morning for our brother Nate, who was planning on playing keyboard for all those songs, but because of his own diligence and study and obviously God's gifting, able to play those for us on a guitar, uh, we are thankful for that. What I'm also thankful for is the many people that were here this morning who helped hook up all of these things so that we could be here and worship unhindered this morning. Uh, and we're reminded, even in those things, that no matter what goes wrong, what fails, that this word of the Lord endures forever. And so I pray that the Lord is being blessed and that you, likewise, being blessed to be here this morning to study, to praise God, to pray together. And now as we dig into his word, we see that even moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, being transformed into the image of Christ. So this morning, if you haven't done so already... We always, each week, encourage you to turn in your own copy of God's Word uh, to the passage that we'll be at this morning in 2 Corinthians 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's, there's ones right in front of you in the pew. You can turn to page 1024, even more so this morning without our screens. We want you to follow along as we walk through this text to see what God is telling us and teaching us about himself and about who we are and about who he's calling us to be. As Pastor Cody said, as we started this morning, we began last week a, a mini-series, if you will, we've stepped aside from the book of Genesis study for just a bit, to talk about what does it mean if, if, if we as a church are meant to, to make mature disciples, if Jesus commands to us to go and make disciples, and we've added the word mature just simply to, to draw our attention to the fact that, that it wasn't a once and then we're finished, that it's an ongoing maturing process that we're a part of. If it means that we're to make mature disciples, and then we said, as we talked about last week, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? So last week we looked at the word confess, that we are to have a right and an ever-growing confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord. Maturing Christians are those who are continuing to study and to grow in their knowledge of who God is and who they are apart from God, who they are in Christ and what he's done for them and what that means for them and the world around them. And this morning, as we come to the second mark of maturity, we come to the word transform. Every morning, if you, every Sunday, if you come in through our foyer, you see these four marks of maturity. And this is the one that is probably the most unique in the sense that instead of just saying transform, if somehow we can do it ourselves, we instead say maturing Christians are those who are consistently, day by day, week by week, month by month, being transformed and changed into the image and the likeness of Christ. So as we think about changing from one thing to another, it got me thinking about um, our, our youngest son, Cole, one of his favorite books, which, by the way, getting him to sit down and read a book, those of you who have helped us in keeping nursery and served us in those ways, you know that that's not happens all that often. But once in a while, when we get him to sit down and we read a book together, one of his favorite books is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Now, in this book, if you're not familiar with it, there's a little egg that lays on a leaf, and on a Sunday morning when the sun comes up, uh, this caterpillar pops out. And this is a very hungry caterpillar. And so on Monday, he eats through an apple, and Tuesday through two pears, and Wednesday through three plums, and, and four strawberries, and then Friday, five oranges. Then on Saturday, this guy just pigs out. 
I mean, it, it's a lollipop, it's ice cream, it's, it's, it's cake, it's salami and cheese. I don't know how any of this goes together. And ice cream. And then by the end of it, it says he has a tummy ache. Well, yeah, no, no kidding. And then on Sunday, to be a good, good caterpillar, he eats through a nice leaf, right? Everything gets right. And then he builds himself this home, this cocoon. And it says in a couple of weeks, he nibbles a hole and he pokes his head out. And then you turn the page and he's become this beautiful, colorful, bright butterfly. And so when we think about being changed by the gospel, if we're really honest, that's kind of what all of us would want, right? We come to faith in Christ, we put in a little bit of effort for a little while, and all of a sudden, man, we are exactly who God's called us to be. And the reality is, it just doesn't work like that. At least in totality, maybe in periods of our life or in, in, in certain areas of our life, God miraculously just enables us to overcome sin in so magnificent ways. But on the whole, there's a lot of work to be done to make us into the image of Christ. But I think on the flip side of that, those of you who are teachers or coaches, you, you know that you've had students or you've had athletes or dancers or musicians that you've worked with and you see this amazing potential. And for every uh, professional athlete that's out there, there's a host more that were as naturally gifted but didn't put in the effort and the time or they just gave up. As a teacher, you know you've looked out and you've seen that there's something more, but they just aren't willing to put in the effort to continue to grow. In neither of those instances is this what it looks like for a believer to walk and be transformed to the image of Christ. It's not going to happen instantaneously, and yet we're also not called to just plateau and stop continuing to grow and to look like Christ. So as we look through our text this morning, we're to see that the glory of the Lord is revealed in Christ. The glory of the Lord revealed in Christ, giving sight and transformation for all who hope in him. To give sight and transformation for all who hope in him. And if you're a believer here this morning, our encouragement, our challenge, the hope that we have is that as we behold the glory of Christ, we become progressively more glorious. As you behold Christ, you progressively become more glorious. Normally, as Pastor Cody said before, we walk through books of the Bible, but because of this series, we, we've kind of popped into a few passages to help teach and reinforce these marks. So just a quick context, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. If you go read 1 Corinthians, you understand that this is a church that had a lot to be corrected. And by the time he writes this letter, which may have been the third or even fourth letter that he wrote to them, Paul is speaking here with raw emotion if you read throughout his whole letter. He deeply cares for them, but he's also speaking with direct boldness in correcting them. And he tells them that his confidence to do so is in Christ, that he's a minister of a new covenant, a covenant greater than the old covenant that he says brings only death. So here's what I want to do this morning. Paul is driving in all of this passage that Katie just read for us towards the very bottom. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the entire text for us. I want to kind of give some running commentary as we go, and then we'll apply this at the very end. All right, so look with me, verses 7 and 8 specifically. Now, the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones. Now, what's going on here? What's he referring to? The context here is Exodus 34. Moses is up on Mount Sinai for the second time. He's already, come, he's already been up there once, got the Ten Commandments. He's come down, and then, then the people of God are doing what? Oh, man, they've gotten bored with God. They've become impatient. 
They built a golden calf. They've started worshiping it. And Moses gets so mad, he throws down the tablets and they're smashed into pieces. And so as a good prophet, he goes back up the mountain on behalf of the people, asking God's anger to relent. And God says, make new stones and chisel them out. And I will again give you these, this law. And so in verse 29, Moses comes back down the mountain holding these tablets. And so after spending time with the Lord, much time, 40 days, 40 nights, and putting these, on new, uh, these, these, these commandments on these stones, he comes down and the people of God, which he doesn't realize, can't even look at his face because it is shining with the glory of God. So much so that the people can't even look directly at him. And the weird thing is, even in that glory, what Moses was bringing down wasn't life. What Moses was bringing down to them ultimately was death. And here's why. Because the, the, even just taking the Ten Commandments, but even the law as a whole, when, you, when God gave that to his people, what he was effectively telling them is, when you look at this, people who are holy like I am holy, my people to be in right relationship with me, should measure themselves up against this and they should pass every single one of these. And yet we know that's not the case. We know that for each one of us, there are times in which we worship and love things greater than God. There are times in which we lie or we steal. We, you'd say, well, I haven't murdered, but Jesus would expand on and say, if you've had hatred in your heart, it's the same sin. I haven't committed adultery, but if you've lusted, you've committed the same sin. All of us have broken the law. And Paul writes that if you've broken even one piece of the law, you're a lawbreaker. You've broken all of it. And the penalty for being a lawbreaker is not life. It is death. So what Moses came down the mountain, even with glory of being in the presence of God, brought death. But he came down, he's glowing. And so even in that, Mo Moses' face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. The, the Spirit of God in and through him shining forth to a sinful people who couldn't look directly at it. And interesting that, that Paul says that this, this glory which was set aside, your version may say being done away with or fading away, was being brought to an end. And if that's the case, then how much more is this glorious is the Spirit's ministry? And the ministry of the Spirit is to convict us of sin. The Spirit's ministry is to point us to Christ. And as we turn to Christ, who then that same Spirit that Moses saw to the point where his own skin was radiating the glory of God, that Spirit indwells us. Not in a once in a while when we go up to the mountain or into the tent of meeting, but always every day, every moment of every day. How much greater is the ministry of the Spirit? Verse 9 says, if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, then the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. Again, comparing the old covenant to the new. Not only did it bring death, it brought condemnation. You are guilty before God. That law that says that you are not good enough. But the ministry that brings righteousness is far superior. Because what the Bible teaches us is that when we return to Christ... Our unrighteousness is not just somewhat cleaned up. No, it says that the righteousness of Christ is exchanged for our unrighteousness. And that which he perfectly grasped, which he perfectly is, 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 is attributed to us. And our unrighteousness done away with. How much greater is that ministry and that glory that comes, that which brings life. And not life for a while, but life eternal. So much so that Paul says in verse 10, he compares now the glories. 
Yes, the old covenant came in glory, but, it's, but the new covenant's glory is so far surpassing in greatness of the glory of the old covenant. It's as though the old covenant's glory is as nothing. as nothing and yet we put so much effort and so much energy into comparing ourselves and and thinking we're good enough and and trying to be okay and check all the right boxes and and all of this Paul says that glory that comes from that is nothing but the glory of Christ what the Spirit is doing in Christ so much more glorious so in verse 12 since then we have such a hope we act with great boldness we are not like Moses Moses, when he was before the people, had to cover his face. They couldn't look on the glory of God. They were afraid. And so Moses, when he would speak, would have to cover his face until the the glory would fade away. And Paul says, we aren't like that. We in Christ have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Therefore, we act in boldness. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we be able to speak and act in boldness? We have the spirit that caused Moses' face to so shine that people far off couldn't even look at his face. That same spirit lives inside of us. What would we have to fear? The spirit of God lives in us. The Bible says that the Israelites' hearts were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil remains. It's not lifted because it's only set aside in Christ. Still today, whenever Moses is read, whenever the law, whenever, whenever someone is, is reading and trying to measure themselves up against the law, a veil still lies over their hearts. Taking back to the Exodus, but just a little bit before. That was Exodus 34. In Exodus 20, if you were to go look at that, it's not just Moses that's invited up on the mountain to be in the presence of God. All of the people of Israel are invited up on the mountain. They're to consecrate themselves. They're to stand at the base of the, of, of the uh, mountain until God blasts his horn. And they see the glory of the Lord coming down in smoke and, and thunder and all of that. And when God calls them up, they get scared. They turn. They walk away. And they stand far off. And they say, Moses, how about you go and just tell us what God says? They were scared. They were okay with there being a boundary between them and God. They refused the relationship that God offered, and they preferred the separation that existed. And Paul says, even up until his day, and even our day, that those that prefer the separation from God, that veil to see the glory of God still remains. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That veil that covers their eyes is removed when someone turns to the Lord, when they repent from their sin and they place faith in Christ. And then there's this interesting phrase, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Paul's uniting the word Lord here and Spirit. They're of the same essence, nature. He's, he's getting at the Trinity here. And so what he's saying is where the Spirit of the Lord is, The Lord, by the way, that we just turned to in verse 16, where that spirit is working, there is freedom. Paul links freedom with the veil being removed. In chapter 4, if you just look right past where we are today, and it may be on the same page for some of you, in verse 4. If you go back even to verse 3, it says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel 
of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Before the veil is removed, they cannot see. Now, what does it mean that they can't see? If I were to stick you in a basement, totally pitch black, and there's stuff all around, I said, go move around freely. Can you move around freely? Oh, you're going to be hindered at every turn. All it takes is someone cutting on the lights, removing the darkness, and all of a sudden, you are free to move about. The work of the Spirit in removing the veil means we are now free to see reality as it actually is. Free to see the glory of God. The moment the veil is lifted, the light of the Lord and His glory rushes into our eyes. Chapter 4, verse 6, that this light has been shown in our hearts, which is God's glory. And then what he's driving to in verse 18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We have the same similar phrasing here in uh, the end of 18 that we did in the end of 16 and 17. The Spirit that brought freedom of sight in verses 16 and 17 now brings freedom for transformation in verse 18. When Moses went in to meet with the Lord, he gazed at the glory of the Lord as one looking in the mirror. Likewise, now with our faces unveiled. Some of your translations don't say as looking in the mirror. They say beholding the glory of the Lord. In this free, unveiled state that we are in now in Christ, we see and we behold the glory of the Lord. As we do that, the Spirit is transforming us into that same image of what is being reflected in that mirror, which is the image of Christ. So as we look back through this entire few verses, I understand we're moving somewhat briskly through it, but three things concerning the ministry of the Spirit pop out to us. The first is that the Spirit's ministry is far more glorious than the law. That which we would measure ourselves up against has a fleeting glory, brings only death and condemnation. The Spirit who points out our sin but points us to Christ as a Savior, His ministry far more glorious and lasting. Guys, the law isn't just Old Testament. Meaning it doesn't matter for you. The law is still at play today. Every single one of us, it condemns us before God, declaring us guilty. And his enemies. And yet the spirit of of Christ's glory shows us the beauty of his sacrifice on the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection. The invitation for us to be in right relationship to God through Christ. So first, the spirit's ministry is more glorious than the law. Second, the, the spirit grants freedom of sight. And we say freedom of sight, we say to see the glory of God as it truly is. So many things in our world today declare to be talking about reality as it really is. And the truth of the matter is, when you have a veil over your face, you don't see the glory of God, they're not looking at reality. It's actually when the veil is removed that we see things as they truly are, and we see the glory. So the, the Spirit grants freedom of sight. And thirdly, the Spirit grants transformation into the likeness of Christ. So when you look at these verses on the page, it looks at first at least that we see first and then at some point later we begin to be transformed. And even at times I feel like we've, we've, we've probably messed that up even in our, in our discipleship. 
You preach the gospel, you see someone saved, and then later you worry about whether or not they're going to be transformed into the image of Christ. It's not the case here. The moment the veil is removed, the very moment the veil is removed, the glory of God rushes into our eyes. And our hearts immediately begin to be transformed. When one looks or beholds or gazes as one does in the mirror at the glory of God, we are being in that moment transformed. Not two separate actions. Joined together. It's the, here's the thing. When you think about all of it together, transformation is actually happening while you're beholding the glory of God. That's how you need to understand these last verses. Transformation is happening while we're beholding. And the phrase that I hope we remember when we leave here today is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And again, I'm, I'm using the word behold there. I know the translation we're reading from says looking. Two reasons for that. One, many of your translations say behold. Two, sometimes when we think of looking at a mirror, we think of it like, you know, you walk by, you glance to make sure your hair's not doing anything crazy. Or maybe the other way around, maybe you look way too much in a mirror, but you're studying yourself and not something that's being reflected, what you actually should be looking at. So I'm using the word behold because I think it captures more of what the text is trying to get us to understand here. It's not a focus on ourselves, but on a reflected glory. We can't yet see God face to face because of our brokenness, even as saved Christians. Now, one day when Christ returns and makes all things new, we will see him as he truly is, but for now, reflected through Christ. So what does it mean? If I'm telling you that we are transformed by, by beholding the glory of God, what does that phrase mean? That sounds like a really good church phrase. Behold the glory of God. Got it? Don't know what to do with that. When Paul refers in verse 18, what he's referring to is this type of seeing God that makes what's possible in chapter 4, verse 6, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The Spirit grants sight. Behold, beholding the glory of the Lord means that we see Jesus for who and for what he really is. That we see Jesus for who and what he really is, the Messiah, the Son of God the most wonderful treasure in all of the world. So what it doesn't mean is that we're supposed to read a ton more books, take a bunch of seminary classes, be here every week for a quip class. All those things are helpful and good. But if what it means to behold the glory of God is to, is to see Jesus for who he is and to treasure him above all other things, then at its core, our transformation is a, it requires a heart change. Not a mind change, not an information change, but a heart change. If it was simply, if our transformation simply involved a list of do's and don'ts, then the good news for you today is that every single one of you would get a nice big check mark by your name because you're here. But the reality is that simply coming to church most of the time, or even all of the time, it doesn't guarantee that your affections and that your desires are being brought into conformity with Christ's affections and Christ's desires. It's good for you to be here. It's good for us together. But God commands that for our own good. But just doing the actions doesn't guarantee heart transformation. 
Heart change is more than just a recognition that the Lord is true, but also that he is precious, also that he is beautiful, that he is valuable and desirable, and that he is satisfying to us. If you look at spending time reading God's word and you look at it as a chore, or you look at pausing during the day to pray as something that you dread or that you're bored with it, man, you've and you've missed something. That you've missed who and savoring who Jesus actually is. And you've missed how Paul means to behold the glory of the Lord. Heart changes don't happen through our own willpower. Or by simply learning more information. Heart changes take place when the truth of who Jesus is overwhelms our affections. Such that our preferences, our desires, what we love become the things that he desires, become the things that he loves. And our affections are changed as we look intently in the reflection of the glory of the Lord in the person and the work of Christ. Church, we are being constantly formed. We are being consistently molded. We are being transformed. The question is, is it but the fading glory of the things of this world or by the surpassing glory of the Lord working in and through and on us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we gaze intently at Christ. Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 16, and he's an old man at this point. He's been through a lot. He's been shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and sped upon and jailed and, and all of it more than once. And he writes by way of encouragement that even though the outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. How is Paul's life being renewed day by day? What is the means of his transformation to seeing and beholding the glory of God? And so he writes in verse 17 for our, our momentary light affliction. Can you imagine being able to say that? If we've been beaten and jailed, have experienced loss... And all the other things we read from Paul that he went through, it's light, momentary affliction when he compares it to what he calls the incomparable eternal weight of glory. So Paul says, we don't focus on what is seen because what is seen is temporary, but on what is unseen because it is eternal. Paul is renewed day by day when our lives and our hearts and our eyes are focused on the things of the Lord that last forever and not on the things that give us immediate pleasure and immediate fulfillment. Those things around us look attractive, they're entertaining, but they're fleeting, and their glory will one day come to an end. But what the Lord has in store for you is something that cannot be compared, and it does not end. It's an eternal weight of glory. So if the means of our transformation is beholding the glory of God, then Paul writes in 18 of what the outcome of our transformation is. It's very simple. We'll be conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, measured in the greater and greater degrees of his glory being reflected in and through us so the world may see Christ in us. You know that's true. We've all met that person who within five minutes of meeting them, you know 
This person loves Jesus. In the way they speak, in the way that the love of Christ exudes from them, it is very clear without even having to talk about some theological discussion that the love of Christ is shining forth, reflected off of them, right into you as you are talking with them. As we gaze upon the glory of the Lord, as we continually see Jesus as a greater and more valuable treasure than anything this world has to offer, his purposes become our life's purposes. What he loves becomes the things that we love to greater and greater degrees. What he detests, we find less and less pleasure in and more and more desire to flee from it. And slowly, over time, we become more and more like Christ as we behold with wonder and with all his glory. So today we've talked about how a maturing Christian is one who is consistently being transformed in the image of Christ. And we do that by fixing our gaze on his everlasting glory, allowing the Holy Spirit as we're gazing to transform us, to shape us, to mold us into the image of Christ. And I hope we're understanding and encouraged that even though it's not somewhat instantaneous, like the caterpillar turning into a butterfly, the work of change in you by the Spirit is just as real And far more beautiful. And yet I feel like if I walked down from the stage right now and left it with simply telling you that Christians are consistently changed. That you are to be transformed and you you are to participate in that process to simply fix your gaze on Christ. I feel like if I left right now and that's all I said, I would be doing a disservice to some of you in this room. Because the reality is, my guess is there's some in this room this morning... You don't feel that freedom in Christ. Paul says we are free. The Spirit gives us sight, which is freedom, and you don't feel that freedom, maybe like you once did. For others, maybe giving over to certain sin habits or pleasures of this world seems too difficult or not even worth it. Maybe you've even tried before and you just keep failing. So is it really that big of a deal? God, save me in Christ My end is sure. I will be like him. I'll be with him forever. Why am I really concerned with this middle part? I've kind of gotten to this point. I'm kind of good. I I enjoy these things of the world. I come to church on Sunday and I get kind of my fix there and and I'm kind of good and and no longer changing. I was trying to think of my own life this week of those periods of time in which I felt like that. So the best analogy, I know all analogies break down that I could come up with this week is I was picturing a man or maybe a woman, but for me, a man that was in, you're in a big city on a cold winter day, down in a dark, dingy, stinky, somewhat lonely subway station. And there's an escalator that goes all the way up to the sidewalk where it's bright and sunny and warm outside. And we were down in that dark, dingy subway, and as we turn to faith in Christ, God places us on the escalator that is moving upwards towards that light. And all we need to do is continue to look there, and we'll move, and the escalator will move us towards that finish line. And yet I feel like, and maybe even not just me, but maybe many of us, Instead of looking towards the light, my, 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 my stance is facing back towards what I've left behind. And worse than that, I find myself actually trying to walk down the stairs of the escalator that is going up. And but by the grace of God, I can't walk fast enough or hard enough to ever actually get all the way back down. 
but I'm still doing it nonetheless. And so after hour after hour, I look around and I'm no closer to what I left and I'm no closer to the light ahead. I've just spent all this energy, all this effort, all this time, and I've gone nowhere. And how frustrating that would be. How tiring would it be to spend that much energy fighting against who God's called you to be, but wanting the things that were behind. And you're tired and you're frustrated. And I feel like for some of us, that's what would, if we're really honest, that's what our life would be depicted. When we turn and we look at what we've left behind, man, there's still that thing that I, I kind of want, I want. And, I, and, then, and there's this that I, that I kind of, I don't necessarily want, but I want to be close to it. And all the while, God has called us to something better. And you know it's better, but in the moment, this is a lot closer. This is a lot easier. This is a lot, this is right in front of me. And so we continue to walk against what God is doing. And we're tired and we're frustrated. And maybe we even blame God that we're not where we, he, we want to be. God, why haven't you taken me up there yet? Why am I still struggling with these sins? All the while, we are longing for that which he's called us from. And if we're really honest, I think what even happens more than that is we know that that's not great. And so we come here on Sunday morning and what that looks like is that looks like us peering over our shoulder and seeing the light. And so for just a moment, we stop fighting for a little bit and Spirit transforms us. And we move a little bit, but man, come Sunday, or come Monday, I'm walking right back towards what is easy and comfortable. And you're tired and you're frustrated maybe this morning. Maybe you don't see God working in your life. And the reality is maybe that's because we ourselves are longing for the wrong things. When what God really calls us to do is simply turn and look and gaze and the Holy Spirit working in and through us is going to move us along towards the light of the glory of that city that is above. And as we do that and as we rest and as we stop fighting and longing after that which is a fading glory to that which is, is, is a greater, more glorious reality. God moves us along. And the closer we get to, to the top of that escalator, the closer we get to the sidewalk, the more the light seems to seep into our view. And then we begin to feel the warmth of the sunlight hitting our skin. And we greater and greater see the glory of what's to come. And we start to see the outline of the, of the tops of the buildings of the beauty of this city. And all we need to do is sit there and focus on that. God is transforming us. We are not the ones having to work our way up those stairs. God, through his Holy Spirit, is doing that. But so often, man, we've turned and we're longing for what we've come from, and we are tired. But the way in which Christians are made into the image of Christ is by simply fixing our gaze on Christ and his glory. And as we see it in all of its wonder, as you get to the top, as you get closer to what is before you in that escalator, you no longer want that which is behind because what is in front of you is so much greater than that which is cold, dingy, stinky. You see it for what it really is. And you look forward to what is to come. Church, that's what God's called us to do as Christians. He has done the work. He's put us on the escalator. His Holy Spirit is, is, is God says that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Our end is sure, but we participate in that. We can gaze at Christ. We can behold his glory and watch how as we do that, we become like the glory of Christ.
Church, the reality is maybe for you that sounds really good, but it sounds almost impossible. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like that, that's easy for me to stay up here on the stage, but, but the reality is that's not how life actually works. Our church covenant that we, we, we sign every year, we signed a, few week, a couple weeks ago, under the section for transform, it says that we will meet regularly and fulfill the one another commands of Scripture by counting others more significant than ourselves. Why does that matter? Because you can't actually do the one another things of Scripture by yourself, right? You've probably heard that before. So when we sign this covenant before God and before one another, we are saying we are committing ourselves before God to one another for your good, for my good. So you are not alone. You are not without hope. When you are weak, there are others who are strong. And when they are weak, you are strong. You and I will go grab their arms, even though they're wanting to turn back to what was before. And you grab their arm and you bear the burden with them and you walk with them as God transforms us together into the image of Christ. Each one of us, none of us by ourselves. That's why when we write in our covenant as a family of believers being transformed in the image of Christ by the power of the gospel, as a family, we, together, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we, together, being transformed, together, helping one another behold the glory of the Lord. Because what we behold, we become. And what we behold together, we become together. Church, we are called to behold the glory of Christ so that we may be more and more like him from one degree of glory to the next. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the beauty of all of it, but, but specifically this morning, passages like this that remind us that what you have done in Christ for us, for your glory, is so far surpassing in wonder and beauty and fulfillment and satisfaction than anything this world could offer. But God, we also thank you that we are reminded through this word that it is you who is transforming us. Because in the same way, we have no chance of saving ourselves. We would in no way be able to make ourselves into the image of Christ. God, we confess that the, the stranglehold of the things of this world sometimes is very strong. That the, that the pleasures of this world can be very enticing that the immediate gratification we get from, from things that, that we know you've called us to leave behind can sometimes seem too difficult to resist. And yet, God, you've told us that at the end of the day, your spirit giving us sight to see reality as it is, that as we mature in you, as you move us along from one degree of glory to the next and we look behind and the things we've left look less and less appealing. God, we know that you're not done with us. We thank you that you don't give up on us, that you're continuing to work in and through us. And God, we pray that as a church we become convinced that we are to bring you glory in the way we stare and behold your glory in Christ and that you've called us to do that together. God, we thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.